Now that we've just discussed or read out that uh, book one, which was on concentration of the Samadhipada, let's go over the cheat sheet notes. So now we're going to switch back to the cheat sheet notes. This chapter is on Samadhi or cognitive absorption. So it's the highest state of consciousness. And Patanjali, that collective group of individuals we've decided, has opened up the... um, and is showing us the foundation, the great big picture of everything that's happening. And um, the first sentence or the first um, line is Atta Yoga Anushasanam. And YS, I always tease people, it's not yoga study, but it's actually yoga sutras. So it's, that's how yoga sutras are indicated, yoga sutra 1.1, which line or which aphorism it is of 196. So ata means now is the time. Now then yoga is being explained. Now begins an exposition of yoga. And the thing is, is that ata is repetitive a lot through these verses because ata, now is the time. Just like I handed out something for you that's a little packet on meditation about mindful moments, now is the time. Every inhale and every exhale, we begin again. Ata. And ironically, do you see how similar it is to hata? Right? Ata, now is the time, and hata, balance. We're finding balance, and now is the time. And when we get to the word yoga, it can be defined as union, joining, state of integration, merger with the divine self, or balance. There's so many ways to describe yoga. There's also so many uh, different religious iconography, whether it's the Anjali Mudra, whether it's the yin and the yang, whether it's the sun and the moon, right? There's so many different ways to say show that balance. But the idea is that you're finding wholeness and you're yoking together. Atta yoga nushasanam. Anu meaning Adam, the smallest building block in nature. And anushasanam is like an explanation or a perception in its fundamental level. So we get to that first line and we're like, now is the time. We are going to just cut the crap and get to the real deal, right? So Yoga Sutra 1.2 is Yogash Chitta Vritti Narodaha. Okay, I give you about four different definitions of this. But if you don't remember anything after today hanging out with me, this is one thing as a yoga teacher or a yoga student that you really want to always remember is a huge part of our practice. Um, and so we're going to say it out loud together. Yogash. Chitta, vritti, narodaha. Yogash chitta vritti narodaha. Yogash chitta vritti narodaha. When I grew up, my dad always told me that shit happens. That was just like kind of it, you know, like put on the bootstraps, just go out there and do it. There's no such thing as being depressed or being sad. Just go, right? Shit happens. So. What we're learning here is that yoga is the control of the modifications of the mind field, or yoga is the suppression of the modifications of the mind, or the state of yoga arises when you cease to identify with your fluctuating mind, or yoga is the dissolution of the mind into the origin of the mind field. It's all very heady, right? 
But the idea is that the vrittis are fluctuations or turnings, and the minefield is a mutation of sattva, which is the purest aspect of prakriti. So your thoughts, which is chitta, the perceived tool, which um, occurs during meditation, is really a river and, and it flows in either two directions. So chitta happens, right? We're either going to be positive or negative. So we're going into one direction, which is the ocean of the world of experience, desire, ignorance, sin, indiscriminate knowledge, all that stuff. Or the ocean of spiritual sources, true self-knowledge, liberation, independence, control over our samskaras. Our object is to stop the flow in one direction and make it flow in the other. So if you're negativizing, how can you be in a more positive space? If you are in a space where you're having a dark mood, how can you feel a light mood, right? And samskaras are where the chitta, which is the the thoughts, um, they happen, right? So chitta happens. It's kind of like, you know... It's a given. But we can let those thoughts become samskaras, which are grooves like a record, where they start digging deeper so that you start playing the same thing over and over again. And that's when we screw ourselves, right? So Patanjali, this collective of individuals, knew, just like a therapist, you are not your thoughts. But if you keep thinking those thoughts, you are going to ruminate and you are going to go into that black hole of depressiveness. And that is not where we want to go with our life, right? We want to do the exact opposite. We want to flip the switch and take ourselves into a place of positivity and harmony and um, enlightenment and find joy, right? We want to literally find freedom in everything that we do. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so vritti isn't simply a thought. It's the activity of forming the concepts of individual thoughts that arise in the mind. The practice of constraining, inducing the concept of reality for mental impressions. So your paranoia, your twisted thoughts, your samskaras, all that judgment and doubt doesn't have to be there. If we can calm the fluctuations of the mind and learn through breath, yoga, move, mindful movement, and all of these sensory integration practices that come from this great discipline, we won't have to worry about our mind getting the best of us or being a trickster. Or we always hear of like the monkey mind, right? You know, oh, there's a banana. Oh, there's some other friend I can go play with. Oh, I'm going to tap something on the back, but it's my tail getting me. I'm like all discombobulated, right? You know, bananas are like goofy. I mean, the monkeys are really goofy and fun, and they're just like all over the place. But um, it, the idea of what we're trying to learn is that yoga calms the fluctuations of the mind so that even we might get distracted, it's not going to throw us off course to finding our true north, to finding our space. Um, Narodaha is a cultivation of stillness of mind, and it's the cessation of the misidentification with the mental modifications. It's the goal of yoga and the means to attain yoga. So it's a process and a state of being. Uh, does that make sense? And when you practice all of this stuff, you find lightness 
you're not saying I don't have a negative side I don't have a shadow side what you're learning how to do is to embrace every facet of your being right because even in like the most beautiful diamond there might be a little fissure or a little crack in the facet it doesn't mean that it's not a bad diamond right it doesn't mean that it is not powerful and strong um, it's just like a petal on a flower there might be one little flower that is starting to wither but all the other ones are just so brilliant that that one that's withering is beautiful but it doesn't mean that that darkness is going to take away from the radiance and the light that exists and that's a huge thing too because i think people either think i have to be happy all the time right world is great all the time and oh susie's life is so awesome because you know she's always happy look at her um, facebook pictures right we don't know what's happening on the other side but we also have to realize that we, can, we have to have this scale that's always balancing. There's a beautiful yoga pose called Tolasana, scale pose. You sit in lotus flower and your hands are on the ground and you lift up. And that's called Tola or scales. And it's the same thing as like a lawyer's scale or the way they used to um, kind of uh, trade, you know, those old time scales. Um, but that's what we're always kind of balancing between the two. We're on this beautiful seesaw of life. And so we have to embrace and be comfortable with our shadow just as much as we embrace the lightness. So something that we talk about a lot is to let it come, let it go, and let it flow that in your mind you want to really ride the gracefully through life's ups and downs um, and this is where meditation kind of comes into play yoga is liberation from the mind but not of the mind our thoughts aren't conceptualized and meditation is a moment-to-moment -moment conversation When we allow ourselves to um, be present to the breath, you can let thoughts come and go like clouds in the sky because you're not attached to them, right? So what I would like to try for a exercise is, has any of you done candle gazing before? No. No? We did it in Oh, you did? Okay. So um, after we go through this chapter, we might do a little candle gazing exercise as a little bit of a practice. Yoga Sutra 1.12, Abhyasa Viragya Bam Tan Narodaha. Practice, comma, non-attachment are the way to avoid identifying with your fluctuating mind. So we're literally practicing and teaching ourselves a discipline um, that's habitual because we can get attached to things all the time right but we have to teach ourselves how to um, be disciplined enough and practices progress that's why a lot of like meditation timers they have um, timer um, progress bars 
because they really want you to notice like, oh, I did X amount of days. And then it, it's just our human nature, that dopamine hit that we're like, oh, I can do longer. I can do more. But when you start doing more and, and keep on that practice and make your meditation and your mindfulness habitual, it is something that is a domino effect into the rest of your day. So it's a good thing. And um, the comment I had made last night, it's like the wings of a bird. You cannot fly with only one wing. That's a really, really good reminder when you're like, I don't need to practice today. And a practice could be sitting for three minutes or it could be sitting for 25 minutes. It really depends on what you're doing. It could be a yoga nidra. It could be a yoga practice. It could be taking three deep breaths at a stop sign instead of racing through them, right? As we've learned in reading the sutras, practice is anything that puts you in the zone. There are no limits, but it has to be habitual. Yoga Sutra 1.14, your practice will have a firm foundation with this attention to an overextended period of time with sincerity and without interruption. But it's really important to remember in Yoga Sutra 1.15 that non-attachment is the awareness of your own self-mastery as a seer while not clinging to the sensory objects already experienced or heard from others. So like someone can tell you, just like I'm saying, like I could tell you all of these things, but you have to experience it for yourself and then teach from your experiences. You want to be aware of yourself as seer and seeing with non-attachment. So, so what exactly does non-attachment mean? And this is the student exercise that comes up next. If you sat across from a partner and told them a story about something painful, frightening, or worrisome in your life, as a listener, you wouldn't be able to show any reaction. You wouldn't be able to show facial movement. You wouldn't try to make a sound or reach out to comfort someone. You're just sitting silently for a minute and literally listening. And then you would switch turns without saying like, oh, I had these thoughts when you were talking or I just want to give you a big hug or I want to fix everything for you, right? That kind of thing. You're noticing how um, challenging it is to practice um, yoga with a sense of non-attachment to the thoughts and feelings that arise without getting involved in identifying with those thoughts and feelings because both partner A and B reside in you. So like... It's really hard as a teacher to not get stuck with people's emotional residue or to have boundaries like we were talking about with our jobs that, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense of trauma that you can pick up from other people uh, when you're taking uh, kids and educating them and working with them in a school. You're parenting but in a different way than a parent, right? So to have really good boundaries and not own someone's stuff, but hold space and be present to them is super duper hard. That's what I mean by non-attachment. It's, it's a therapy practice actually that they teach a lot of the idea of compassion versus empathy. And it's super, super tough to do. And what's interesting is as, as a teacher, 
what happens is, is that students will come up to you and they'll say like, well, I have this thing going on with my ankle. What can I do with it? And you're a doctor, but I'm not a doctor. I just play one on TV. You know, <laughs> it's like I have an experience and I have opinions, but I don't know what the best thing is for you, right? But what happens is with this sense of non-attachment is like if someone tells you they don't like, I'm just going to pick something, like your hair, right? You can decide to take it personally or you can decide to like, okay, that's fine. You don't like my hair, but I do, right? right. And that's the idea of attachment versus non-attachment, okay. right? Because my happiness in my relationship with my boyfriend, in my relationship with my family, in my relationship even with my pet, my happiness doesn't rely on like if they like me. Or if they, you know, I mean, obviously you're hanging out with them because you like each other. But, you know, like if they can't do something or if they don't like something that you like, that doesn't mean that like the world is over and you're a horrible person and you should feel bad about yourself. It's those are your thoughts making you think it's so, right? Is that a good explanation? And that's really, really hard, I think, in our culture because... Because uh, this book, these four books of, uh, of the Yoga Sutras are teaching us um, guidelines for living. But they're also in some ways teaching you how to take ownership for your own shit, but not other people's shit. But also to do unto others as you would do unto them, you know? So we're learning... That you know, and now is the time we're going to learn about balance. We're going to learn about unification. We're going to learn about wholeness. And it's the foundation of our being. And when we practice yoga, it's the modifications of the mind. We're learning how to not get trapped in the um, high highs and the low lows. And then as we move deeper, we're learning to not be attached to um, kind of like a... Uh, uh, judgments or um, uh, others' perceptions so that we don't try to fix everything. There's a different idea of creating um, like a community or a culture versus like I'm creating this because so-and-so has an issue and I need to fix that person and then you lose sight of who you are. Everybody okay? Yeah. It's that midday lunchtime. No, it's yeah. deep. Right? It's deep. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're in philosophy land. Yeah. Well, I see how sometimes it could be easier than others. Like, I, I think of the whole, this exercise and some of the empathy part. Yeah. Being able to feel compassionate, but maybe not, like you said, own it, own their feelings. Mm-hmm. That part, I, I think that's harder than not letting other people's opinions of me Mm -hmm. make a difference. Right. And that's why you want to be a teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you want people to be healed and get rid of pain and suffering and feel wholeness from a practice that offered you a lot of positivity. Right? Yeah. And had a a transformation in your life. Um, And so the hardest thing as a teacher is to not own other people's shit. 
but to guide them, right, mm-hmm. down the path. But someone could, like, totally not like what you like and not buy what you're selling, you know. Yeah. Someone, uh, <clears throat> this person that I listen to that I really appreciate, uh, tells a story about, like, you know, there's a whole box of peaches, Right? And there's tons of peaches, and everybody in the room wants a peach, but this one person does not want a peach, and they don't like peach, they hate peach. Are you going to decide that you like feel like crap because they don't like the peaches? Or are you going to be like, oh, they don't feel like peaches? Because that's like how people relate to you, too. You know, They might like you, they might not like you. How is it going to affect you is all based on your attachment or non-attachment to it. I just keep looking at you because you asked the question. I don't yeah. know. It's, I, I don't can I ask what your, what you, in, in your occupation, can I ask what your feelings are on that? Do you, do you feel like you have, you are trained and, and can listen to, you know, uh, someone's sad, sad story and you can listen and feel detached from it? Like, I can. I can. Um, there's a lot of, cultural baggage that comes from being female and being a social worker that I feel like I have to work through because my job is you know culturally the view is that my job is to fix everything and you know I can I can I don't know I can attempt to fix everything and it may or may not work for that person and in the meantime they're not necessarily getting the help and the, the growth within themselves that they need and I'm getting burnt out so it's like at, so what, it at what cost more, um, yeah at what cost and so it's actually more functional to yeah. try to guide someone and what you do with it is what you do with it mm-hmm. but if you don't you know, you don't make that phone call, you don't take my advice, well, you know, something else, but you don't have to, yeah. I don't feel invested in them doing what I tell them to do because it may not be the right thing and I don't own their stuff. I feel like in my occupation, I have spent 20 years owning other people's shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's what's so hard of being a teacher is like you're you're not getting the credit for what you're doing, but there's so many parents that aren't able for whatever circumstance to be a good parent. And then that child's going home to this crazy environment and then they're coming to you yeah. and you're trying to nurture and help yeah. and guide and right. And then yeah. it's just not it's not balanced on the other side and then how you how how you don't own it is so hard because most teachers I know get burnout or I say how do you release you know how do you feel better and they'll say I drink or or like you'll say to a teacher there and they like you know no one's given up and said I don't care but I have had teachers who work with really challenged kids um, literally quit because it was too hard. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really feel for your uh, situation and how to find that balance is, is really a gift. Mm-hmm. Do 
teach you in yoga. Yeah. <laughs> you need to let go of other people's shit. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I can see a big difference in the doctors and nurses in mm -hmm. terms of how they manage things. Like the nurses yeah. take on a lot. They do. Emotionally. Like they, like if the patient has a they don't listen to the recommendations with their diabetes or whatever. They own that. The yes. doctors are like, we gave them the information. It's up to them, you know, like, or this is the situation they're in. I can't change that. We can get them help, but it's up to them if they want to accept it. Or yeah. a lot of times with like end of life discussions, um, the families that really want everything or patients that want everything but really doesn't make sense or the opposite right. where patients don't want to fight and we think well you're healthy why would you choose that the nurses take on a lot of that like social and emotional stuff yeah the doctors do I feel like yeah that's an interesting insight and now that you say that I noticed that and then in terms of like success rates like doctors are getting graded on how well patients are diabetic meds and numbers and all you know the data right. but we can't own that mm -hmm. like that's we can give the information to the patients but a lot of it is lifestyle and so our salaries and stuff are based on how and people, people change their medications <laughs> and we it's can't own that days. like you know yeah. we're asked to own it and we we can't well, that's crazy. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing so there's definitely constant struggle between like wanting to fix everything and wanting to like get patients to listen, but, but and like vaccinations and stuff. Like, I don't fight people on it. You know, I can give them the information, and it's up to them. Like, I can't own every single poor parenting decision. Or right. my nurse is constantly telling me like, well, all the background stuff of like, you know this person sleeping with this person and whatever and I'm like that doesn't make any difference to what I'm doing you know like I'm going to treat them as a patient and I don't need to know that information because yeah. then I own it you know yeah. it's isn't it fascinating like the that idea of compassion versus empathy is so hard and if your job or if test scores or if like you know your salary is is predicated on or your success rate is predicated on it or like you know like I mean data is different it's a little bit more cut and dry right you know but it's like oh holy balls and then you get into a classroom where you're teaching people yoga and it's a highly emotional environment mm, you really have to practice that non-attachment that's why energy is so huge the idea of energy, right? Because, like, I could, there's 15 people in class, right? I could take on everybody's shit, or I could sit back and notice it and be observant. And if, if there's a conversation where someone wants to be like, oh, let's talk about something, that's great. But you have to almost, like, um, uh, take in but not take it on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So take in, but not take it on. Like I tell a lot of teachers um, before or after they teach to wash their hands, right? 
because it's just a cleansing practice, purifying practice. Um, one of the reasons that people use malas is not only it's a meditation tool, right, but where you practice japa, where you breathe for every bead, but also malas and um, stones and different things can become shields, just like Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge thing. And so interesting, yesterday when each chakra has a specific stone or a specific colored stone, you know, that you can pick that relates to it. Now, once again, we're in the land of woo, but some people, you know, it works. Like I used to like my pet rock, you know, it's like, it just depends, right? On what, what your proclivities are, what helps you. But to take in but not take on is a huge part of Sutra 1.15. And then, are you ready for me to blow your mind? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> My doctor will like this here. You ready? I don't know if I'm ready. I think you'll like this. Okay. Yoga Sutra 1.23. Ishvara Pranahanind Va. Right? Or you cease to identify with the fluctuating mind through total surrender and devotion to the divine self. Okay, the word Ishvara is the ultimate seer, the personal divine, the divine within. One of the names of divine is your given birth name. But Ishvara means God. Right? So, we're telling people all the time that yoga is not a religion. Yoga has nothing to do with God. But this text is based on the idea of being divine and God-like. And so it is very spiritual doctrine that is telling you that if you surrender to your higher power and your divine self, right? Not those fuzzy thoughts in your brain that make you feel icky and yucky, right? Not the negative land, but all that stuff that taps you into your true nature and all that stuff that makes you feel a warm glow of in the zone and really doing your pure, your, your truth, your uh, practicing your authenticity and doing the really good work that your purpose for life is. That is a a surrender to your higher state, which some people believe is God. Um, there is a book called the Bhagavad Gita. Have you ever heard of it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is translated as the Song of God. So one of the great, some of the greatest texts in yoga is showing you that the power of surrender is really big and it's an express route to enlightenment. And in the Bhagavad Gita, surrender is not shown as a sign of weakness. You're surrendering your limited self of a sense of who you are and you make space to feel your true nature. Pretty fascinating, huh? Yeah. When you move a little bit deeper into the text, 
on the next page, on page four, um, one of the sayings is that give yourself to God and attain the identity of God because if not, whatever you do feels, feel grows. So get over yourself immediately and do it now. So when we practice yoga, we're a siddha. We're a superhero. And you have the beating heart of a badass, but we're always putting ourselves at the short end of the stick right? If you see yourself as divine, if you see yourself as a great power and you feel it, just like this Anais Nin quote above, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom. You blossom 10,000 fold. Yoga Sutra 1.28 to 2.9, it talks about the secret sound of Om. And you're reminded of the power of Om and the way to bring us back to your true nature or your true home, right? The primordial sound of the earth. Um, uh, repetition and reflection of Om destroys obstacles to knowing and brings knowledge to the divinity within. Um, yesterday I talked a little bit about the Hertz. Um, is 7.83, another seven. It reboots our body and it allows you to, because uh, it represents past, present, future. Um, a, the thing that looks like a three, right? That is the waking state. The thing that looks like a, a circle, um, that is the you, the dream state. And then that little dot, uh, that little half moon crescent shape, that's the M where it's deep sleep. And then there's that space where you're representing everything and you're transcending all space and time. It's the Bindu. Sometimes people put that little dot right here. It used to be only for um, married people, but now every, a lot of people do it. So you're really seeing that if I sat in the car and was singing, you might see me rock, like from the outside in my car. I might look like I'm singing to like a, a rock song, you know? But actually I could be singing Om just to get my head on straight, you know? And what happens when we say Om, it goes ah at the base of your spine, ooh near the solar plexus, Mm, near your throat and your heart and then that space where you give for the kind of the mm, like mm, mm, good like oh thank you like Campbell's soup you know like mm, good <laughs> or like I have um, someone who likes to text me when good things are happening and all I get is mm. <laughs> it's the best text ever right so thank you so much. Um, uh, so uh, uh, we're going to practice that. Uh, um, there is one of the first breaths you'll learn in your breath ratio classes are a three-part breath. And I know that I'm throwing a lot of different things that you'll be repeating in some of your other classes, but a three-part breath is belly, lungs, ribs, 
ribs, lungs, belly, right? You're, you're inhaling and you're exhaling, but it's a three-part breath. We call that an integral breath or one of the first breaths we ever teach people, right? Babies came out breathing from their diaphragm, but about after five years, is it five years, they stopped diaphragmatic breathing? Yeah, so, so once again, we're teaching people how to breathe. Om was a sound that was to create that higher states of consciousness, but to open up the lines of communication, right? With a three-part breath. A lot of times when I have people who don't really feel a three-part breath, I have them lay down and do this with kids in school a lot mm -hmm. and put the, a block or something heavy on their tummy and have them get their belly to rise and their belly to fall when they're breathing. It's really fascinating to see how it amps people down. But when kids are on the spectrum and they're having issues, they've been putting weight belts on or weight vests, right? Now, millennial women who are single are getting weighted blankets yes. because they're suffering from stress and anxiety, right? And so it is fascinating. I love your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, really amazing. Weighted, they work. Yeah. Weighted blankets at yeah. school. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they work, right? But it's to get that sense of you know, whatever, nesting, cocooning, womb-like womb feeling, but it is to get that primordial sound of OM so that we can regulate our nerves. Oh, interesting. It all ties together. So we are going to practice OMing. Yeah? Okay. All right. How much fun? So it's, um, I, I, because my knees are kind of, uh, Silly, I like to sit like this, but ultimately when you sit in lotus flower, what you really wanna watch is uh, as you get into the 5-0 region like I am, uh, you want to have your hips higher than your knees always so that you don't hurt your meniscus. So whether it's a block or a bolster, whatever feels bolster. good, but you always want your booty up higher so that your knees last longer. Yep. Feels yeah, better. I don't think I can get below this. Oh, you don't have to. Okay, good. Yep. No. Uh. Uh. So sukhasana. Sukha means sweet, right? Dukkha means the dregs, the poopy stuff. So sukhasana is with your heels in front of your groin. So one of the uh, other major texts is a book called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and um, this is how you sit with one heel and stacked on top of the other. Yes, that's exactly what it is. You're putting your heel next to your um, pecker. But there are yoga poses, like we know Janu Sasana, which if you were in class today, we did like a Johnny leg, Janu. But actually you sit with your heel on your anus in the, one of the versions of that pose because it is supposed to trigger and start your what system? That we studied yesterday? Digestive system. No, your chakra your system. Chakras. Yeah. So it's literally like, yep, uh huh. It engages your perineum, which gets all those gains. Yep, uh huh. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's, I mean, we're saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. Breathe. Yeah. All right. 
So you're in this comfortable position, but what do you feel in your pelvic region? Like the tree that we did today in class, right? You feel like you have a more balanced state between your male and your female, yeah? And you feel like you have, this is your queen. We're gonna talk about this tomorrow in inversion practice. So your pubic bone is your queen, your tailbone is your king. Queen of your practice is your shoulder stand, the king of your practice is your headstand. But when the queen and the king are trying to create a kingdom, they need their servants to make a match making in heaven, so they need to be balanced, and one can't be leading the other, right? Because if the queen is leading or, uh, and pulling up this way, we're like um, a little bit constipated, right? And if the king is leading and we're tilting everything over, we're giving away all of our energies. So the idea is that you want the pelvic bowl to be balanced and in a neutral place so that you can find the evenness and the harmony to get everything to rise up out of the murk and the mire. So you're literally, just like the conversation about Shakti Shiva, we're just getting these two to have this really nice relationship. So as we sit here preparing for the um, three-part breath, um, sometimes with people I have them place one hand to their tummy, one hand to their heart, but if you feel comfortable today, I would like you to try the Gyana Mudra, where you feel the pulse points in your fingers, palms face down, and the fingers are straight. When you do that, now that your king and queen are creating a kingdom and meeting, your elbows slightly rest, and your collarbones open, and your heart is held a little bit higher. Am I the only one who feels that? You feel it? Yep. And then most of us walk around like storks, right? So our chin's really far forward because we're thinking and we're just stuck in our heads and we're not connected with the rest of our body. What this does is it gets us to be a little bit more in alignment. And then your shoulders aren't as heavy and you can create what yogis like to call a blue sky mind. So today, just so you feel comfortable, let's focus on one spot. Okay. <laughs> And if that's not, uh, too far away or whatnot, just look at a spot four feet out in front of you. And we are going to refer to the sacred sound of Om, which destroys obstacles to knowing and brings knowledge to the divinity within. And we're going to tap into our hertz or that primordial sound of the earth. Um, close, uh, uh, let all the air out on a nice exhale. Inhale, breathe in. And then on your exhale, let it go. Inhale, breathe in. Exhale, let it go. Inhale, breathe in. And now starting at the base of the spine. So now we'll start to integrate it and not just enunciate each letter, but start to let it flow. Exhale all the air out. Inhale, breathe in. Exhale, let it go. 
And we'll do it three times. Yeah. So what's really beautiful about that is that because we are energy and we are vibrations, when you start chanting, um, which is a big part of Kundalini practices, I mean, they chant like from five to 15 minutes to you can do a half hour just saying the same thing over and over, holding your hands in a specific position or doing some kind of physical movement. It has such a profound effect on you. And... Um, you'll be able to find on the internet or YouTube or anything like just OM tracks. It's so calming and grounding. It's amazing if you just had that in the background of like a high energy situation, intense situation and notice how it affects that and kind of just really tones it down. It's really neat. There was an art installation up at the, um, Minneapolis, what's the modern art? Uh, the, Walker. the Walker, Minneapolis Institute of Art, or the Walker, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember which. I thought it was the Walker, but now I'm not it's sure. Anyway, contemporary one by the spoon with the yeah the chair. Walker. The Walker, yeah. The Walker. Did they have a sound thing? Yeah, they had a. They, it was like six rooms, and so they used scent and all this stuff. But one of them was just this contemporary Buddha statue. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else in the room. Um, but playing ohm over and over, over and over and over and what <coughs> it's mesmerizing it has an effect on you yeah <laughs> yeah well there's People that video walk. of that man holding that baby just chanting ohm and it completely goes from like crying to just completely calm and like looking up at him like so peaceful oh and it's like a matter of minutes that I oh I'll have to send that out I've seen crazy. it yeah, yeah. It is. The power of sound, the power of vibration, the power of that <coughs> compassionate energy, you know? I mean, like, even when you were playing around yesterday with that whole thing, how your disposition changed interacting with the other person, it's pretty wild. Uh, the last sutra um, here 
to talk about before we go to book two is uh, Yoga Sutra 1.33. Your mind becomes purified by the cultivation of feelings of amity, compassion, goodwill, and indifference, respectively, towards happy, miserable, virtuous, or sinful creatures. So if we want to preserve the innate serenity of mind, we want to be happy for the happy, compassionate towards the unhappy, delight, delighted for the virtuous, and indifferent to the wicked. Should be really nice, right? So the idea of this is that Dalai Lama stated, all creatures want to be happy. But um, Gandhi and uh, uh, many others have, have reiterated how happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. That's yoga, right? Thought, deed, and action. And we're going to get to that when we talk about a word called ahimsa. But you want to be empathetic by nature, right? And it's hard not to feel for others. So we want to rejoice in the good fortune for others and treat them with compassion and kindness. And when people numb out in our culture right now because we're so disconnected and we have so much dis-ease and discomfort, it's really, really hard um, to be that way. And a lot of times it creates a lot of competitivity, com competition, right? I just created a new word. Um, but as yogis, we can't be indifferent because we're spiritual activists. So I always say that we're pure of heart revolutionary spirits, right? You know, like Spiritual Gangster has all those great t-shirts and as some of you guys are wearing shirts that are sold here, but it's really hard to be a spiritual activist and, you know, like even be a vegetarian or to... Um, Find a way to uh, live with compassion and kindness, even for people who've done really horrible things. But that's part of our path. We are intimately connected. And as teachers, we're working to uplift the lives of others without sacrificing ourselves. And the final sutra here on uh, 1.34, by exhaling and restraining the breath, also the mind is calm. So meditation is the express ticket to enlightenment. Uh, pranayama, right, is uh, its mastery over the breath. It's breath control, it's breath ratio practices. So there gets to a point where you have an inhale and then you have a space called the kumbhaka and then you have an exhale and another space called the kumbhaka. And then people play around with that breath practice. And we learn through that how to stand in our truth. So what I would like to do before we move on to the next book, uh, chapter two, um, our book two, Sadhana Pada, is to go into your Mindful Moments book and to look at one of the most known practices. It's where the uh, staple, the saddle stitch, opens to in the center. And it's called Alternate Nostril Breathing or the Breath of Balance. Um, Anuloma Vilom or Nadi Shodanam 
has many different names, but it means channel purification. And it's a pranayama practice that strives to balance the subtle energy channels as the nadi, all those nadis we talked about yesterday in the chakra system. And it opens you up to your vital life force. So there's all these things about how it helps people. We're gonna skip that scientific confirmation, but I want you to try to do it. There's a mudra called the Vishnu Mudra, which if you see the next um, page, you have your thumb and you have the peace signs and then you have the pinky and the ring finger. So these fingers are going to help you to practice breathing, okay? So you take and with the palm of your right hand facing you, you take your thumb and you plug up the right nostril. So there's a flap to your nose. A lot of people when they say plug up, they try to stick their finger up their nose. Don't stick your finger up the nose. You're just on the outside. If you're working with children, I use pointer fingers and I say it's a dolphin breath and I make it a fun game because this does have effects on your nervous system. So you don't want to do it a lot with children, but this is something that we do with teenagers and adults. Okay. It helps you to balance out those nostrils, right? One nostril is closed, the other one nostril might be open, but in yoga, we're creating evenness. So we're trying to get that both nostril open scenario, which engages the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic, and it gets you to really be calm. So you exhale through the left, inhale through the left, plug it up with the pinky and the ring finger, and then you exhale through the right. Inhale through the right, plug it up, exhale through the left. Okay, take a break for a second. Are you okay? Do you need Kleenex? Because we're gonna try and do it for a couple minutes. I'm gonna get Kleenex. Okay. So this really helps with that nostril shift, that nostril balancing, but it helps you to tap into your uh, higher states of consciousness. So the breath practices is a form of meditation. And um, I like to do this for like 15 minutes every day. It really helps set you off on a good path. It seems like a lot. I know both of your eyebrows raised and you got furrows in your brows. You're like, holy shit, 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do my practice because I know people who do it for 30 minutes or longer. You know, like I know people who get up at four in the morning so they can meditate for an hour or, or you know, they start extending it longer and longer. I'm not asking you to get addicted to or change your lifestyle. For meditation, I'm asking you to think of it. It doesn't mean that you just have to sit there and just you know do nothing, or that you don't. You have to, you could chant, you could go for a run, but if you want to try alternate nostril breathing, it works really well, and I really like it. So, does anybody have? Because this is still running. Does anybody have a timer that they could set to three minutes, and then we'll find a comfortable seat. And I'd like you just to. It, it, see how you feel doing this. Ready? Uh, is everybody set?
Okay, so you're in a comfortable seat. The right nostrils clogged with your thumb. The peace signs are up towards your under chakra and how many petals does that have? Two. Good, two. See, it's all making sense, right? All right, when you're ready. Okay, ready? Yep. Go. Exhale through the left. Inhale through the left. Plug it up with the pinky and the ring and exhale through the right. Inhale through the right. Plug it up. Exhale through the left. Inhale through the left. Plug it up. Exhale through the right. Inhale through the right. Plug it up. Exhale through the left. Keep up your rhythm. Find your pace, whatever feels good for you, and just be present to the experience no matter what happens. Try and exhale through the left side. So go through the cycle till you exhale on the left side. And then just sit with the breath for a minute. Observe and notice with no judgment.
Thank you for timing that. Did anybody have a experience or anything that arose that they would like to? It got easier. It got easier. <laughs> At first I was a little panicky. Right, it does. It, it creates that weird anxiety. Stiff, forced or stiff. Uh -huh. Then when the breathing became my own, then it was, you know, like a relaxed yeah. breath. Cool. Really long breaths. My God. Good. I think mine did too. I get really panicky about breathing, so I was nervous at first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is true because you are controlling the ratios so in some ways you're um, repatterning right and reframing your experience of breathing nice awesome well the next chapter we're gonna study is book two called sadhana pada the path to realization or on practice. So now we're really gonna discuss how badly do you want it and here's the path to it. And it's the chapter on sadhana or the conscious practice of yoga. So we're giving ourselves or the Patanjali, that collective of individuals who wrote this, gave the um, one who practices step-by-step -step directions for reaching enlightenment or reaching moksha freedoms. 